Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Dave Clark spent 18 and a half years in the job. The former detective leading senior Connie graduated in 1998 and was going to be a career cop. Dave worked in transit in the traffic management unit at Maroondah and Knox, where he was involved in an incident involving the murder of a colleague, Senior Constable Tony Clark, in April 2005. This horrendous incident changed Dave's life. He left Vicpole, was seconded to the AFP and worked in the Solomon Islands before returning to Vicpole and leaving again due to ill health in 2016. Dave was awarded the Victoria Police Star Medal for serious injuries sustained whilst on duty. But he's well on his way back now and speaking to us about his journey. Hi Dave and a very warm welcome to The Crime Couch. Hi Rochelle and thank you for having me on your program. It's an absolute pleasure. What led you to becoming a police officer, Dave? Well, I'm going to steal the answer from a few of your other uh, your other guests. I love helping people, always have, um, even when I was a little tacker at school. But it's a little bit more sort of involved for me, that answer. My dad was a policeman in the 60s, 70s and early 80s, and he was ill health retired in 1983 after almost 28 years of service. I was 11 when dad, dad got out of the job. So some of my earliest memories are of dad in his police uniform, coming home on the weekends in the in the divvy van, having a milkshake, and he'd um, be inappropriate, I suppose, in this, in hindsight. But he'd take his gun out, take the bullets out, and give me his revolver to play with. And then it was my job. It was before the days of portable radio, so then I had to sit in the van and listen to the radio and see if he his call sign come up. So yeah, some of my earliest memories are of dad in his uniform, and I sort of likened the police uniform to the sort of the outfits Batman and Superman and all the superheroes used to wear I, I connected I think male strength to the Vic Pole uniform and yeah I think I was about seven when I decided I was going to follow in dad's footsteps. Graduating in 1998 as you did Dave what path did you see yourself having in the job? Well I was 25 and I thought once I got to Melbourne uniform um, after a few months I thought I love this I'm going to make this my life and I thought I'll spend the next 40 years in the job I thought I'll try and go up at least a a couple of ranks see how far I can go in the job and yeah that was that was my plan to to um, try and get promoted. Reading a little bit about your career you really seem to resonate and get involved in highway patrol I noticed what attracted you what what drew you to transit and traffic management Dave? Well, it was there, one of my mentors at Melbourne Uniform. It was the old Flinders Street, 637 Flinders Street, where I was. And when I, I voiced my keenness to, to be promoted one day, they said, well, try and, try and experience as much of the job as you can before you get promoted because it'll help you, you know, reviewing members' briefs and, and all that kind of thing, look good on a resume. So I thought, all right, I'll go to transit, work the trains and trams and buses for two years. One year of that was the DSG 
that's when I fell in love with the thought of becoming a detective one day. Then I thought I'll do a few years at the um, Highway Patrol, or it's now Highway Patrol, it was Traffic Management Unit, TMU, back then. So then I transferred to the um, Maroon to TMU, based at Knox, in uh, mid-2002. On April the 24th, 2005, tell me what went through your mind when you heard over the radio, Officer Down? Well, when it sort of started a few couple of days before before the uh, horrendous incident on f- I was that was actually the I was at the region 4 traffic task unit I think it's now the state uh, highway patrol southeast they're based in uh, Notting Hill now but they were also based at the Knox cop shop I was seconded there and I'd worked there for about 12 months before this incident and I'd worked with all the boys including Tony Clark for probably 12 months before that and on Friday the 22nd of April, um, Tony was on an 8 to 4 shift, he was on a, a court shift and a group of us started at 6pm that night so I didn't see Tony that day but um, we worked a 6pm till 2am drink driving shift um, in the Arrow Ranges and I worked with a bloke named Dennis and at the end of that shift the next morning at 2am at knockoff, Dennis said oh, do you want to hook up again tonight because we were doing a 6 till 2 on the Saturday night, I said yeah no dramas. So, and Saturday afternoon, evening comes around, I get to work early for a change. Oh, I, was, I was a bit of a shocker, I always rocked up about five minutes to go. And Tony was already there, and we're signing our gear out, and he said, oh, Dave, do you want to hook up tonight? I said, oh, look, sorry, Tones, I've already promised Dennis I'll work with him. He said, no, no, it's all right, you know, because I'd worked heap with, heaps with Tony. He said, no, don't worry about it. Dennis, I'll be right, we'll go to the Clark Brothers again, we'll, you know, rip him a new one. And I said, mate, I don't want to go back on my word with um, you know, Dennis. So he said, all right, we'll work tomorrow afternoon. I think we're doing a 4 p.m. start on the Sunday. I said, yep, we'll work together tomorrow afternoon. So me and Dennis went out two up and Tony and Stewie and Ace McDonald all went out in their own cars, one up. So it was just a run-of-the-mill shift. About 1 o'clock, one twenty. we were, Dennis and I and Stewie were processing an 05 at the Yarra Junction um, cop shop. And I went out, out the front for um, a cigarette and just... A weird, I know this sounds weird, but I had a really weird feeling come over me to check on Tony because Dennis and I had spoken to him over the SMR and rung him a few times during the shift, as we did with the other boys. We just all kept in touch all the time. So I rang Tony's mobile and it rang out twice. And I thought nothing of it, went back inside. And then um, finished processing the 05 uh, Stewie took off and then Dennis and I took off at about 1.30 heading all heading back to the Knox police station to knock off and we're driving Dennis and I are driving along the Warburton Highway and I was catching up on the running sheet and all of a sudden Dennis said um, oh hang on Dave there's a car back there and we, we both looked at the, the clock on the dashboard and thought oh, this is going to be overtime if this is some <laughs> a bit selfish but anyway so thank thank goodness to this day thank goodness Dennis did you in and parked behind the car on the side of the road and we jumped out and because I just thought it was some pissette who's run off the road so we thought we'd better check it out so we jumped out got the torches and um, shining around the, the car it was unopened so I opened it and looked inside it was empty there was a red driver's copy of a penalty notice on the the front passenger floor and I saw that it was Tony had given this the, the driver of this car, a ticket probably three hours before. Thought nothing of it. 
then Dennis and I decided to do a bit of a foot patrol of the area. Dennis asked me to go ahead of the car, he went up the back, and then about 30 seconds later, Dennis called out, hang on mate, there's someone up here. So I went to where Dennis was waiting for me and we shone our torches up the highway and I could see that there was a body lying on the side of the road in the grass. And um, we both walked up together and I could see that it was a male in uniform, probably in between 30, 40, 50, uh, 30, 40 years of age, and shining our torches up and down him. And I said, I could see black boots, dark pants, light-coloured shirt and an equipment bat belt. And Dennis leaned down and felt for a pulse on the male's neck. And I said, is it a copper or a security guard? And then Dennis leaned down and altered the right-hand short-sleeve shirt and revealed the Vic Pole badge. He said, it's a copper, mate, call it in. Come up urgent and tell him he hasn't got a pulse. So I ran back to the car, came up on came up on the air and came up urgent, asked for an ambulance, said there's a member in uniform, hasn't got a pulse. Um, then on my way back to Dennis and the body, Dennis is walking towards me and he said, it's Tony. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, it's Tony Clark, I can't find a pulse, see if you can find one, Dave. So I've ran over to the body and there was a mobile phone sticking out the top of the male's right breast pocket and I've adjusted that where the name tag is and sure enough, T. Clark, Region 4 Traffic Task Unit. So I've shone my light on the male's face and that it was only then, for reasons I won't go into, it was only then I realised, I recognised it as being Tony. What a absolutely horrendous situation for you to be involved in, Dave, and I can't even pretend to imagine what that must have been like. Senior Constable Clark, Tony, had been a policeman for 11 years. Now, most of that time, as you know, he was a traffic officer. He was married to Tina and they had a 16-month-old son, Connor. How good a mate was he, Dave? Very good. Um, Tina, yeah, Tony and I, we got along very well because he was so experienced in traffic law. He was so professional. The sergeants actually liked it when him and I worked together because I was still quite naive as far as traffic law and traffic procedure went. So they loved me working with Tony. I loved working with him. He was so, so professional, so good at what he did. He was like a walking encyclopedia as far as traffic law goes. And the, the only sort of, when we bu- sort of butted heads, is that the saying, was he never and I'll try not to swear, he never shut up about Connor, his kid, because <laughs> I've never had kids, and he used to go on and on about him all the time. That was the only thing that sort of gave me the pip every now and again. Um, it's like, you know, Tones, can we talk about something else? Yeah, right. All right, what TV shows are you watching? Well, the other morning I was watching Bob the Builder with Connor. Well, man, can we talk about this? He just went on and on. He was so He was the epitome. He was the textbook example of a proud dad. You know, Connor was, I think, 16, 19 months when uh, when Tony passed away and uh, he was just the, the proudest dad, proud of Connor, never stopped talking about him um, and I, I really admired that about him. He is, Tony was a lovely fella. He sounds like an extraordinary man and a great friend and colleague. What was Senior Constable Tony Clark, what was he doing? He was working one up and what was known about this gunman, Mark Bailey? Very little. We were on a drink drive operation, sitting primarily sitting off pubs and that kind of thing. So 
what's believed is Tony was sitting off the home hotel, I think it's on the Warby Highway, and he'd seen the driver leave, so he's pulled him up. And what, what's weird is, as I mentioned before, he'd pulled him over for speeding on his way to the pub about 10.30 the previous evening and written him up for, I think, a 16Ks over or similar. Very little was known about him. Tony didn't come up code for or anything because he obviously didn't think he needed to, although knowing tones, he would have recognised the car from earlier. So, yeah, he's given him a, a breath test. I won't go into the details, I know, but um, a struggle has ensured over the firearm. The coroner found that it was more than likely that the driver... I won't say his name, it doesn't deserve it. The driver um, somehow took possession of Tony's revolver out of the holster, chased him around the car, let, let a zinger go, which went through the right-hand side rear, pass, uh, rear passenger window and the bullet landed in the rear left-hand door. And then um, at some stage, Tony has received um, a gunshot wound, which was a fatal injury. The, uh, the killer has then taken possession of Tony's revolver and speed loader, spare bullets, and jumped in Tony's car and taken off. And that's it's still still embarrassing to me today. After within a minute of identifying that it was Tony Stewie, Thompson pulled up in his car and opened his door, and I said, "It's Tony Stewie," and he reacted with swear words as you would. Then, um, as he got out, he said, "Where's his car?" And I hadn't even realised. I must have been in shock. I hadn't even realised that Tony's Huey, his unmarked car, was missing. So the killers jumped in Tony's car and taken off. And and about an hour later, a transmission came over the radio saying that um, Tony's uh, unmarked car was found and a short distance away, his killer was found in, in scrub with a self-inflicted gunshot wound from Tony's revolver. And when I heard that transmission, I was extremely relieved. I was worried for that hour that this prick was going to have a shootout with police and that we might lose more members. So thank goodness a horrendous night ended on the, the most positive way it could have. Dave, it's a horrendous incident. It's something you never assume you're going to be involved in. You, you were involved in it, of course. You were first on the scene of a, of a dear friend and a colleague who had been murdered. How does this impact on you? I mean... Did they teach you about this in the academy? No, look, they didn't. Having graduated in 98, they never really sort of... Um, look, forgive me, instructors, if you did, if you're listening. Um, I, I can't remember any mental health lectures or, or that kind of thing. As far as the impact goes, it was almost in, instantaneous. Crime 544, the, the night shift crime unit, rocked up some, some time afterwards and I had to sit in the back of the car with a young detective and recount the night's events. And it was only then... Uh, that I remembered that Tony had asked me to work with him at the start of the shift. And upon remembering that, I burst into tears and it was a bit awkward in the back seat. Two blokes, you know, one of them sobbing, so he, he thanked me and said the homies will be in touch for a statement. So I got out of the car and walked straight back to where Tony was and knelt down beside him and apologised for not working with him. And I was never the same from that minute on. It wasn't actually finding him, although that was horrific. It was that minute onwards, the guilt, when the guilt set in, yeah, that I remembered that, that um, he'd asked me to work with him and bang, that was it for me. Yeah, I changed from that minute onwards. So that was the impact and that's when you realised that it had impacted so much on you. I mean, they talk about survivor guilt. 
is that genuinely what you thought you, you, you know, did the most damage and psychologically was difficult to deal with, the fact that you survived? I think so. I mean, who knows? If I had worked with Tony, sliding doors stuff, I suppose, would have we been there because I'm a smoker, we might have pulled up the road to have a smoke before we set the home off and he would have driven home or who knows what he would have done, you know. Um, if I'd worked with him, would have I been shot? Would have I had to shoot the driver? Would have Tony been shot anyway because I would have been setting up the back seat to, to put the drink driver in the back seat? You know, all these different outcomes, you know, who knows? I took a month off work. Uh, on work cover. I saw a psychologist once, once, once a week for that month and bless them but a couple of the old boys from the office while I was on sick leave they they come over to my place and you know say oh Dave you know we should think you should get back on the horse get back to work you mate you know this isn't good for you and, and I was making some headway in that four weeks with the psych treatment but um, I thought yeah look they're probably right saw the GP put me on antidepressants so yeah, I thought oh, I better get back to work. Within four weeks of Tony's passing, I was back at work, and within six weeks, I was occasionally working one up. And at the start of those shifts, you know, I'd be signing out the gun, putting in my holster, thinking, "Is this going to be used on me today?" My anxiety was through the roof. Understandably, though, I mean, you you've just almost witnessed the murder of a, of your friend and colleague. I mean, you know, I would ima- I would imagine, as I know, Vic Pol members are extraordinarily supportive, but were you realising that you weren't coping, Dave? Look, I think so, because the month off was good because it gave me to a chance to really start to realise the gravity of this situation and the impact that, this sounds selfish, but the impact that it had on me personally. Because, you know, Dad had raised me, you know, t- took me under his wing at a young age, always look after your mates. If you become a copper, Dave, always look after the boys. You know, go back to back with them in pub brawls, never bloody leave, stand your ground. You know, it's all about looking after your mates. So... I hadn't looked after Tony. That was my belief. My, my belief was, on that month off, Tony died because I didn't work with him, and it's my fault. That that was my belief. So, I was a party boy up until then. Um, I always liked going out with the boys and girls and getting getting drunk and having a good time. But then I noticed that I'd become a recluse, and I would only go out if I couldn't get out of it. If it would look awkward if I said no, then I'll go. And during those times, same as at work. Um, I'd just wear what I called the mask. I'd pretend to be the old Dave before Tony's passing and just pretend to be the old me so no one would worry about me. Um, but yeah, I got stuck into the grog, stopped going out hardly ever, started drinking at home, and if I wasn't working the next day, I'd just I'd just drink myself stupid because the, the guilt was unbearable. And it got to September 05, just before, I think, Connor's birthday and, and mine as well. And... Um, I was working at 10am till 6pm shift by myself and um, I was driving home and I thought, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this anxiety. I'm sick of the hypervigilance, watching me back, getting home stressed out. So I bought two bottles of scotch and two packet smokes, went home and that night's a bit foggy even to this day. I remember listening to depressing songs on iTunes and stuff and I wrote six of my closest mates, including my brother Rob's name on a bit of paper. Then next thing I know, I woke up in the backyard at 6am and I won't go into specific details, but within 10 to 15 seconds it was obvious that I'd attempted to commit suicide. You know, there was an empty bottle of scotch next to me and on its side was um, a Freddy. I don't know what was going through my mind. So I staggered back in inside the house through the back door and carrying the chair and I caught a glimpse of me, a photo of my family on the kitchen bench and I burst into tears. I thought... Right then I thought, if I had done what I was planning to do last night, 
I would have completely destroyed the lives of those I love the most. So then, from then on, I thought, I've got to be really careful about this. Drunk or not, I've got to be really careful about what I do when I'm hitting the piss because this could have destroyed not only mine, obviously, but those, you know, of those lives that I, I love the most. It was a real wake-up call. I feel very honoured that you've sat and talked to me about something which has, you know, been so difficult for you to talk about, Dave. One of the things that I suppose you decided to do, you left the job and you then went to work for the AFP. You were seconded uh, to the Solomon Islands and you worked there. What was that like? What did working for that organisation give you that Vicpol couldn't? It was a wonderful opportunity. It really was. Two, two years in the Sollies, um, worked with some wonderful, wonderful people. Um, some, yeah, really nice, really nice people. The bosses were wonderful. Bernie Rankin took me under his wing and um, I did my best for the, for the great man over there. The thing I noticed over there, Rochelle, was I went over there with a deep hatred for murderers and a very low self-esteem. Robbie Williams' lyrics, I don't want to die, but I ain't keen on living either. That was my attitude over there. And speaking with Bernie and a couple of uh, other Vicpol detectives over there, they took me under their wings and, and told me about some hideous crimes that had been committed uh, in the ethnic tensions in the Solomons between 99 and 03. And so I committed myself to try and grab as many ex-militants who were wanted for shocking, shocking crimes during that time or die trying. I, I, I had such a low opinion of myself, I didn't give a stuff if something happened to me. I really didn't. But that's also, Dave, part of the stress and the trauma of what you've gone through, which is risk-taking behaviour, isn't it? hundred percent. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, I've, I've since learned that it was high-risk-taking behaviour. It's almost a form of self-harm. You then decided to return to Vicpol. Was that an easy decision, Dave? You know, you've obviously got allegiances there. You've done a lot of years there. You've got good mates there. Was it an easy decision to decide to come back to the job? Look, it was, it was, it was, it was good, good time out. Um, that's why I put in for the AFP because I just noticed that I, there were too many triggers in Victoria. I just needed to get out for a while. Yeah, so when I got back, I thought, well, I'm still alive. Um, so I thought, well, in t- this sounds a bit tossery, so forgive me, but I thought in Tony's memory, to respect Tony's memory, I'm, go- I'm still alive, he's not, because of me. I'm going to try and become the best copper I can and try and get into, even as a sergeant, try and get into a position of authority or into a position where I can change things for members, try and make the job safer somehow. That was my goal. So then I set set myself the goal of trying to become a detective and I managed to do that in 2013, got through DTS, and then in 2015 I hit the wall, all caught up with me. I was a shocking pisshead, I was a drinker, that was the only way I was getting through with um, all the stresses and stuff. And that was it. I hit the wall. One question I've got to ask you now. Do you realise that the accident and Tony's death was not your fault? I do realise that now. Yeah. took me a long, long time. And I'm only talking probably in the last two, three years, the pennies dropped that oh, I didn't actually discharge the firearm that was the cause of his death. It took me many, many years to to realise and and to accept that it wasn't my fault. I think things 
would have been different if I was there, but be different in what way, who knows? Only the powers that be know that. And you may also have lost your life. Possibly, yeah. Dave, you're well on your way back now. Congratulations. I know it's been a long journey and continues to be challenging. How do you turn your life around? What, what, are, you, what are the anchors? What are the things that are working for you? Well, for me it was, and thank you for asking because I think it's a very important question not to continue to talk about myself, but I want to try and help people. Um, it's, it was a two-stage two thing for me. It was one thing to realise, Dave, you, you're really unwell that's the first thing I'd say to members out there or people in general. To You need to realise if you are unwell. The second one, second point is you need to decide to get help and you need to and you need to actually get it. You know, because no one rings... This is frustrating for me. This was frustrating for me, but no one rings you out of the blue and goes, yeah, hi, John Smith, yep. Um, hi, I'm a so-and-so from Dr So-and-so's clinic. Uh, we hear you're really unwell, so we've made an appointment for you on Wednesday at 2pm. Oh, okay, yeah, cool, thanks, I'll be there. That doesn't happen like that. To to make change happen, we have to make things, we have to put things in a place for change to happen for ourselves. I know it's hard. I, I know firsthand how bloody hard it is to get help. But life gets better once you do. It really, really does. I'm a living example of that. I know it's hard. You've just got to be as strong as you can and put things in a place to, tr- to try and get better. And ther- therapy is... Therapy works a treat. For anyone listening, Dave, listening to the podcast and listening to your story, who believe or or think they could have PTSD, what do you recommend? Probably to to repeat myself, I think the first step is to realise that you're unwell. The second step, I'd say, I'm not I'm not sort of all over the the welfare system in Vic Pole at the moment, Um, but even as the great Ken Ashworth said, go to your GP, maybe get a mental health care plan or I think it's the Employment Assistance Program these days, touch base with them. They sound like wonderful people. Police, Veterans Victoria, they're wonderful people too. There, there is help out there. And although therapy is is difficult, I'm not going to lie, especially um, exposure therapy, that's, that's rough, but gee, it works. Although therapy is difficult at times, in my experience, it's nowhere near as difficult as going this PTSD and trauma road by yourself without support. Waking up every day, you know, not knowing what, what the day holds for you, your head's, your head's spinning, you feel shit ass, you're not well enough to leave the house. You know, at times I could go three or four days without leaving the house, without having a shower, without brushing my teeth. I was really unwell. But that all changed once I started getting therapy. And the lovely Kay Murphy rang me out of the blue and said, Dave, you seen anyone? Said, no. Go and see Dr. Arthur Velikoulos. He's a legend. I know your reputation, Kay, and I think I better do that. So, yes, I'll do, I'll do that uh, quick, quick smart. Yeah, you're effing better. Get on to it. Then she, uh-huh. then she hung up. Love you, She's, She is fantastic, isn't yeah. she? Yep. So I started seeing uh, the great man, Dr. Arthur Velikoulos, and um, my, my, my recovery started from, from then on. Difficult days, I'm not going to lie, but as I say, nothing more difficult than going this road alone. Dave, well done. Good on you for having the bravery and the courage to not only talk today, but to actually put yourself well back on track and you're well back on the journey to recovery. What's next for you? Thank you. I mean, I'm out of the job now. I can't help society, but if the, the way I look at it now is maybe my career was a bit, little bit like a uni degree. 
that something that I had to go to. And this is going to sound strange. I don't regret having gone through what I went through. I'm so glad Dennis did the Yui because, to, you know, both Dennis and I were, were very close um, to, to Tony and I'm glad that we were... I feel blessed that we were there with him so soon after his passing. The, the coroner estimates five to six minutes. I'm so glad that we were there with him so so soon after his passing. Otherwise, he might have been there out there all night by himself. For me, now, I do a lot of writing. I'm back into the creative stuff that I, that I dropped after Tony's passing because I, I didn't think I deserved to be happy. But I'm, I'm loving getting back into the creative stuff. A good friend of mine and I have written a screenplay for a, a movie movie script um, to hopefully array, hopefully raise awareness uh, to domestic and family violence issues. So hopefully we'll be moving forward with that early next year. And I'm writing um, a number of try-hard comedy skits and that kind of thing because I always, try and, always used to try and make people laugh, so I'm trying to write a few comedy skits at the moment. All power to you. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute delight speaking to you today and, and good luck with the rest of your journey, Dave. May it continue. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Rochelle, and once again, thank you for having me on your program. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime